last week, if you were here, we were uh, refreshed in the gospel by uh, a familiar passage. Uh, For God so loved the world. Uh, James led us through that, and we were refreshed in the gospel. And we come uh, to yet another familiar text uh, where John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. So we've heard that. Pretty clear, done, let's go. Uh, it's, it's something we know well, but if you think about it long enough, you just see how easy it is to know that, but hard it, how hard it is to live it out. <laughs> and I've felt it this week as I've studied this text again and again. Every day this week, I've noticed something in myself where that's hard to do. Um, and I've even wondered, well, how, how, what should I say? How, what do I say about this passage? What should I do? What, what do they need to hear? And even in that, I can hear that I need to decrease. So I stand before you this morning uh, seeking to proclaim God's word, wrestling with the need to decrease myself uh, so that Jesus is on high. <laughs> with that, let me pray. Father, we, uh, we ask that you would lead us through your word. Lord, this seemingly straightforward statement uh, that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Father, we see it, we know it, we hear it, and yet we struggle with it. So lead us, Father. May I decrease that you may speak through your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We'll be in John 3, uh, verses 22 to 36. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. I have really grown to love my cup of coffee in the morning. Many of you probably can relate to me in that. I, I haven't, I've only been a coffee drinker for the last five or six years, but when I picked it up, I really picked it up. And I love having that cup of coffee in the morning. I like to get up early. I have uh, little children, 
so I have to, I've learned to get up earlier and earlier so that I can have that cup of coffee uh, and still have some quiet and maybe sit on the porch with the Bible or something and, and do that. Well, uh, one morning earlier this week, uh, I did not get up early enough to, to and have the cup of coffee on my own, but everybody was up, the kids were up, and, and it was fine. And I was sitting there, if you've ever been to my house, you know, in our living room, we have those four gray chairs, and I was sitting in the one that is next to the doorway to the kitchen. Again, if you've been to our house, you know that chair probably. And I was sitting there, had the cup of coffee, just sort of resting on the, the armrest, and uh, Levi is coming in from the kitchen sort of behind me. And uh, as he's coming into the room, he just sneezes all over my cup of coffee. Now, my little guy was not trying to sabotage my coffee moment. He was just coming to hang out. <laughs> um, but I was, able to, I was able to laugh about it, and I just looked across at Michelle and quoted Rick and Bubba. I said, you just can't have nothing. You can't even have a cup of coffee around here. Um, you know, we all can laugh about that. But uh, the deeper issue underneath it is not explained because really it just sort of stirred in me and reminded me that so much of the of what we do and go through in this life is is focused on self and really underneath the laugh is like hey I deserve that cup of coffee at least at least I get that right and it, it stirs all kinds of things in us right sometimes we don't laugh about them sometimes things come along and they frustrate us or they make us angry and we think, I deserve to have that. Why does that happen to me? Why can't I have that? I should get that. That's you know, All the eyes come out, right? And it's this focus on self. And it's one of the hardest things in the world for us to do is get out of self, isn't it? It's really hard. And, and to one degree, we, we actually can't. Like, this is the only person I'll ever inhabit. <laughs> I can't get out of me. I am who I am. But there's a fallen version of me. Uh, Sigmund Freud heard of him he's a uh, he's an atheist uh, psychologist but he gave us the the pop psychology term of the ego you all heard of that word right um, God really already had described the ego he didn't use that word but he describes the fallen human heart uh, always bent on self you know Genesis 6 5 the heart of man is evil continually all the time you're like that's a lot, but it, it's true. You know it. If you really look inward, you know it's there. And if we go back to the beginning, Adam and Eve were created without an ego problem, right? They were perfectly in communion with God, not thinking about self, but totally enamored by God. Well, Satan came along, didn't he? And he knew which button to push. He took it. You know, that tree over there, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he said don't eat of, like, what's up with that? Don't you think he's holding out? Do you, do you think he really loves you? Do you think he's holding something back? Uh, it, maybe he's hiding something from you. You, know, you can figure this life out on your own. Just go eat. You can, you can know for yourself what is good and evil, and you can figure out life on your own. Do you really need him? And so, of course, we know the story. They, they did eat, and their eyes were opened, it says, but probably, well, we know, not open to reality. They were open to a delusion that they could do this life on their own. That we didn't need God. And so self became the center. And we all inherited that syndrome. The heart turned inward. Fear entered. Shame entered. The heart turned inward and it became the loneliest place on earth. 
if, if we're focused on self, it, it gets really lonely. And so the self from that, it, it sort of drives us and con- it controls us to make self big instead of decrease. We increase self. Why does that happen? There's a lot underneath that. But again, I named some of those. Fear. Fear drives us. Fear of, of rejection or fear of failure or fear of being found out of like, oh, what if they really find out what I'm really like? Or they'll reject me. And so we, we, we project a version of ourselves. We make self bigger so we look better. Making self big can be boasting at times, right? Putting out that positive, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, right? I, I'm doing all right. But, you know, the flip side is also true, that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I can't do anything right. I'm such a loser. And, I, you know, in some sense we could think of that as humility, but it's actually the flip side of the same coin. It's still, uh, someone make me feel better about myself. I feel terrible, right? It's still this inward look. So it's a pride can be inflated or it can be deflated, right? But John the Baptist <laughs> shows us something amazingly different here. Uh, he, he goes off, off the radar. He goes off the, the categories that the world has here and, and really gets that. You saw the, the, if you saw the title of the sermon, The Secret to Joy. The Secret to Joy. He, says, he doesn't say uh, a little bit of joy or joy here and there, uh, bits and pieces. He says, my joy is complete. Or my joy, joy is full, it's fulfilled. He says, my joy is complete, he must increase, I must decrease. It's rather counterintuitive, isn't it? It's rather counterintuitive. But it's the upside-down nature of real joy, and it comes through the consuming love of one who has no ego issues. Jesus. He has no problems with that. Now, this is the centerpiece of this text, this, this statement, my joy is complete, he must increase, I must decrease. Uh, really, everything that happened before kind of leads up to that statement, and then everything else sort of flows from it. So we'll break out our time in this passage to those two parts of he must increase, I must decrease, and we'll kind of back our way into it to get to joy. So first, we'll start with this we must decrease, I must decrease thing. Now, how does John get to making this statement anyway? What? What's the context? Well, you got John the Baptist baptizing with his guys, with his followers, with his disciples. And then you got Jesus somewhere over maybe within uh, distance of being able to see probably or at least know that he's over there somewhere. And he's baptizing with his disciples. And there seemingly comes along a uh, this random, it says a Jew. John's disciples became, uh, got into a discussion or a debate with a Jew over purification. Now, that may have meant that this person, this Jewish person, uh, may have been pointing to the fact that they were a religious or a devout person uh, because they're talking about purification. And that kind of points back to Old Testament stuff where God gave the rites of purification, of washing. Now, uh, the Pharisees added a lot of extra stuff to that where they were washing everything all the time you know they went above and beyond got what god actually gave them to do anyway we don't know what was discussed there except that they talked about purification now the baptism was a pointer to purification that may be why they got there but you can imagine it says that the language of the greek text says uh, basically points to the fact that john's disciples initiated this debate 
It may have been that they saw the guy coming by and said, hey, uh, you're a religious guy. Look what we're doing over here. Isn't this cool? Like this is purification too, right? Doesn't this count? This is, maybe this is the best kind because people are, we're, we're uh, purifying people here. Isn't it great? Don't you see what we're doing? And maybe that guy said, well, I see you doing that, but then what about that guy over there, that Jesus guy? He's got a lot more people with him, and he's doing the same thing. Again, we don't know what that conversation was like, but we can imagine. But what we do know is that John, John's disciples were stirred. Something stirred in them. Maybe it was because of that pointing out, or they saw Jesus, and they saw that more people were going to him, and they were like, John, what do we do? Like, you we're doing this here. You're doing this thing. You, you started this movement of baptism. This is your thing. But now Jesus is doing it over there, and everybody's going to him. Don't, doesn't this bother you, John? Like, what, what's going on? What do we do? Uh, just to pause for a minute to think about what does that look like today to have maybe a movement, a religious movement. Have you heard the term consumer Christianity? Uh, it's, it's really this, uh, this attractional approach to doing church, this idea of like if we can do the mo- have the most entertaining form of church or the, the, the best programs, the most fun programs or, or whatever, and hopefully people will come. And it becomes really flips into sort of like a business model. We've seen it. And, you know, we're actually so surrounded by it in this part of the world that maybe we don't even see it all the time, but it's there. Consumer Christianity. Uh, I was at uh, City Fest, Trustful City Fest, last weekend. Maybe some of you were there. And I, we walked through the, uh, the church booth area, the church tent, where everybody was sharing. They had games to play and, and things to share about programs, various things that all the churches were doing. And, you know, we walked through and got to hear about all those. And one of them was talking about a kid's program they have. And they said how fun it was. And I heard the word fun a lot. Like, it's so fun. Come, we're going to have lots of fun. Every week we have fun. And uh, they said the last thing he said was, uh, someone's guaranteed to be slimed every week. And I was like, wait, what? What, what is that? <laughs> now, what happened in me as I was walking through? I thought, we don't do all that. I, be- I bet our doctrine's better than theirs, you know. It's funny, but do you hear what happened in me? I inflated me. I inflated us. I thought, well, I bet we, I bet we do things better than they do. You know. So it, it happens in all kinds of subtle ways. It happens to us that comparison game that we often play. It plays out in all kinds of ways. Do you know that pastors are all, all pastors generally? I'm speaking pastors everywhere generally. Can always be tempted to create the church in his own image, right, and, and, and therefore, uh, and that comes in, uh, that plays out in terms of, or is driven by uh, perhaps feelings of insecurity, where we end up taking things personally, like if someone leaves the church, it becomes personal, there's always that temptation for pastors, but there's also the temptation for members to also create the church in our own image, right, it's like, well, we could do that better, I w- wish we did it like this, or, uh, oh, I, you know, this happened to me, this person said that, and I don't like that, so uh, maybe I'll go somewhere else. We, we can slip into sort of seeing the church as existing to serve itself. 
we all do that. We all do it. Uh, and, and where does that come from? What's underneath that? We actually, we live in a culture of, of entitlement, right, where we all sort of feel like we're entitled to stuff, right? Hey, they got stuff. Where's my stuff? I want some stuff, too. Uh, or like, hey, I don't, that, why does that always happen to me? I don't deserve for this to happen to me. Why, does it, why is it always me? You know, that sort of feeling of like, come on, can I catch a break? We all sort of think that way. I, I remember I was in a um, small group in, in college, and my friend uh, who was leading that group, uh, looked. I was a new baby Christian, brand new Christian, just like, wow, what is all this? What is this gospel? This is amazing. And he looked around the group, and he said, hey, do you know that no one uh, owes you anything? He told all of us that. I'm like, what? What are you talking about here? But it's that sense of, I don't deserve anything. In fact, if I get what I deserve, then I'm, I shouldn't be here at all. Uh, everything we get's a gift. But that, but that sense of entitlement thing, it really what's underneath that is, again, that desire to be in the place of God. Say, I really know what's best for me. You know, thanks, God, for trying, but I think I know what's, I think I know what's good. I think I know what's right. And I think that's the driver for all sin. To, for us to put ourselves in the place of God in our own lives. That drives all sin. Now, John the Baptist gives us a great antidote to entitlement here in this passage. In verse 27, right, this is his response to his disciples have come and they're like, hey, everybody's leaving you. They're going over there. What do we do? And he says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John uses the position of gratitude. The, my cup of coffee that I have in the morning is a gift. <laughs> Just that moment is a gift. I don't deserve it. My son who sneezed on my cup of coffee is a gift. <laughs> I don't deserve him either. But if I think I do deserve all these things, then guess what? I'm going to walk through life joylessly consuming things. Well, that, I, I want this, I need that, I, I take this, I want that, what's the next thing that's coming? And, and then, you know, all the things that get in the way of what I think I need or want or should have becomes a frustration, right? We get frustrated, we get exhausted, we get irritable, <laughs> uh, and they're consumed. I always laugh with my wife about yard work, uh, especially the, the back part of our land that's just woods. It's about a half an acre where, like, I feel like all this, it's a losing battle of vines and weeds sort of encroaching in on everything else. Um, you know, everything from, like, Virginia creeper to trumpet creeper and ground ivy, and there's probably lots of poison ivy in there. Uh, I know all these terms because I've looked at, like, what is, what is that thing growing on the tree right there? And I have to look it up. But it's this ever, it feels like an ever-losing battle because all these things grow up the trees. And if I just sort of let them go, it's going to kill the trees, right? You, you've seen that, like vines growing up a tree. Eventually, it kills the tree. It consumes the tree. That's sort of what self can do apart from Christ. It just consumes everything and leaves us alone by ourselves. It becomes functional intake, and everything that gets in the way becomes an annoyance or a frustration you know what else destroys joy? 
is uh, a savior complex, savior mentality. Uh, John, again, spoke to that as well in verse 28. He said, you yourselves bear me witness. I said I'm not the Christ. Uh, he said that earlier in John, by the way, so he's saying it again here. And I said I'm not the Christ. Now, none of us is going around saying we're the Savior, right? need to probably be checked in somewhere if we were going around saying that people would start worrying about us <laughs> we don't say that but we can functionally do it i know i see myself doing it at home if i'm trying to fix something like if if my wife is upset or my kids are upset and i just want to fix the problem like well, if i if i could just fix this for them it'd be better and so i end up functionally trying to rescue them rather than be with them or hear how they're doing um now again it's right and good to serve others and be with others and help each, help others, right? That's a good thing, but how do we know we're doing it out of a love for Christ or just ourselves? Oftentimes, our serving others and caring for others, if it's sort of savior complex, again, it leads us to stress and frustration and irritability because it's not going the way we think it ought to go, <laughs> right? We know those experiences. We feel those things. So John is saying, I, we, self, must decrease. But the answer is not simply decrease as in like deflate, right? If, if the, the self or the ego is inflated, it's not just like popping a balloon and letting it, you know, dissipate out. Because if it's just that, then it becomes a deflated ego or a deflated self. And we mentioned that earlier, that's really just a, I can't do anything right. I'm terrible. I'm such a loser. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm, aren't I terrible? Like, you see, that's just like the flip side of the same coin. It's still a, a focus on self. That's why John the Baptist says, he, Jesus, must increase. So what's going on there? Let's go there. The increase of Jesus. Now, I want to speak to what I think is a very common question uh, in the world. That maybe it doesn't get verbalized exactly like this, but I think it's always being asked under the surface as, as, uh, as the world looks in on Christianity. Uh, and that question is, is, is God some kind of an egomaniac? He's always asking to be worshipped and glorified and, and us die to self. Like what, how, how does that work, right? The world wonders that. I've had conversations like that. We probably, at some point in our life, we've wondered that. Probably maybe not wanting to verbalize it, but we've wondered it. But you see, that's simply a projection of self onto God. God's different than us, utterly different. And John the Baptist saw that because he saw Jesus. He saw the only person that ever walked the face of this earth with no ego problems. He had no issues with that. And he saw him. Now, Satan wanted to be in the place of God, didn't he? like self satan wanted to be number one and he convinced us that we could be number one in this world we could be the center of everything and it's what we inherited and really at the end of the day that just made us number two to satan it became we became number two to sin we became number two to to everything else that we think we want or need all the stuff that we worship besides god no god's not an egomaniac he showed the world something utterly different because he took the lowest of lowest places. He saw a world already condemned, already stood condemned, and lo. 
gospel. We heard about it last week. Remember, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So the world saw a God at the highest place, creator of all, become the lowest to redeem us. So that's actually his glory. It's utterly different than the world. It's utterly different than how we think. It's utterly different than how self thinks. And John shows us that here as as the the rest of this passage that flows out of his statement. uh, He's making that point. He who who comes from above is above all. He's he's different. He is categorically different. He's creator. We are creatures. Different altogether. We are of the earth. We belong to the earth, and we speak in an earthly way. That's, again, us thinking in terms of how we think of self and how we think of glory and all those things. And God doesn't think like we do. It's different. Uh, He, Jesus, he bears witness to what he has seen. What has Jesus seen? He has seen the whole counsel of God, all the plans of God from eternity past to eternity future. He's seen the whole plan of redemption, and he's bearing witness to that. But it says, though, if he bore witness, uh, everyone rejected him. No, not everyone, of course not, but that's, a, that's just the statement he's making. He's saying basically those who reject him are rejecting him because oftentimes, again, we're projecting onto God. We sort of see God through our own uh, self-image, and we think, well, I don't know about that, God. I, I, think, I still think I know what's best for me. I don't know if I, like, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, right? I don't need, do I really need a savior? Do I need God to die for me? I'm not that bad. Come on. But those who do perceive him, it says they, they have a given eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What is eternal life? Later on in this gospel, in chapter 17, we get recorded for us Jesus' prayer, high priestly prayer. And in there, he actually says, this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and me. That they know us, that, they, that we know the Trinity. So then what what does it mean to know? It's more than just knowing him and his name. It's more than just knowing his name. Uh, When I met my wife, uh, it was through a series of somewhat ordinary things that happened that turned out to be just pretty awesome things. (laughs) Uh, We were with a group of uh, mutual friends, and uh, I pulled up in my 1990 Toyota Celica convertible. She thought I was cool. I needed all the help I could get. <laughs> um, and then, so the, uh, it was a night or two later, we were at, again, another just friend gathering, and uh, I poured her a Coke, and that meant something to her. She, she thought that was great, and I was, I was really happy to do it. So, ooh, I should pour this Coke for, uh, for her, and maybe she'll like me. The next day, I was at the YMCA um, some years back. <laughs> Um, and a mutual friend who worked there at the time, he came up to me and said, Michael, do you like Michelle? Yeah. He's like, let me give you her, give you her number. I'm going to write it down. And he wrote it down on a piece of paper. I can still see that piece of paper. Uh, it was a landline, by the way. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't know if we even had cell phones, and I can't remember. Um, but I remember that piece of paper. And I remember how excited he was. He's like, hey, here's call. you got to give her a call, man. Call her. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. And from there ensued a dating relationship that turned into marriage that is now our family. 
Now, I can still remember this guy's name, but he faded in the background pretty quickly. He connected us and then faded. John the Baptist is saying this is what his joy is. I get to introduce the bride with the groom, God's people with his Savior, with their Savior. John's being a, a matchmaker in a sense, and it's his greatest joy to fade away and bring us together with our Savior. Now, he, he's using that terminology of marriage, of bride and groom. This has implications or applications for how we think about evangelism. Do we have a burden for the lost? Do we want to, are we excited and have joy in introducing them to Jesus? To the groom, to the husband, the loving husband who, again, has no ego problems. But maybe even more foundational implications, or the maybe most foundational implication, is that we are the bride. It's us. We get to not only have that joy of seeing someone introduced to Christ, we are the bride. And the bride is saved from being lost and, and encapsulated in self forever, forever isolated. It's actually how Jesus describes hell in some places in the Gospels. Being cast into outer darkness, aloneness, forever. He saves us out of that. We're not stuck in self, but the bride gets to be lost in the husband. We get to be lost in his consuming love. So where is the ability to go there? Where is, where is the ability to, to really live this out, to let self decrease, to fade away, that Jesus might increase? Well, it's, it's what we've been getting at. It's having the eyes of faith to see the husband for who he really is. That's having no ego problems. He must increase because he's the only one whose increase is for our good. John's joy, John the Baptist's joy here is hearing the voice of the bridegroom. He says that. He says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What voice is loudest in your head or in your heart? We, we walk around this world with noisy heads, don't we? I've, I've mentioned that before, but we're full of noise. We're inundated with noise. We have stuff coming at us all the time on these devices that are in our pockets. Or, or everywhere around us, there's messages, there's information, but it's not just from the outside, too, by the way. It's, it's inside. It's the, the noise of the, the self asking all kinds of questions like, am I okay? Am I good? What, there's, there's fear driving the, the, the inflated ego or the deflated ego or everything in between. It's really noisy on the inside. But can you hear the voice of Jesus, the groom, the husband? I love you. You are mine. You are mine. So this morning, as we think about this, hear his voice and are you able to allow yourself to fade not into nothing but to fade into him to allow, to be filled by him because that's what it takes to let self fade is that we must be filled by something far greater than we could ever come up with or imagine on our own it is him this decrease so that he might increase 
will be the most transformative thing that will ever happen in your life. It will be a life of, of joy. Dare I say, complete, fulfilled joy. <laughs> and you'll always be growing in joy. Let me close with this. Has anyone ever heard of John Fairfax? Anyone? Okay. I didn't think so. Uh, I happened to run across uh, his name and his story, though. On July 19th of 1969, he completed a solo journey across the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat. <laughs> yep, in a rowboat. It took him 180 days, um, and he, it was, you can imagine, probably, I'm sure he died, or try, almost died like, numerous times, all of that. He ate lots of fish to survive, but he made it. And he arrived in Florida on July 19th, 1969. You know what happened the next day, July 20th, 1969? The Apollo 11 crew landed on the moon. So guess what got the headlines? Not John Fairfax. Even though he did something pretty amazing, right? He, he rowed across the Atlantic Ocean, but he was eclipsed by something greater. Now, most of us in this room are not going to be doing something as amazing as rowing across an ocean. Maybe some of us have done something similarly amazing, but guess what? After a few generations, we, we do lots of ordinary things, right? And after a few generations, we fall out of remembrance. But Ecclesiastes speaks to that very thing, that things that came before are not remembered. Things that come after will not be remembered because everything is so much bigger than us. So how do we deal with that? Are we okay with just fading into not being remembered? You see, we fill most of our lives up with, with vexation and busyness and striving, seeking to make something of ourselves or make something of our kids or, or whatever. But all that just kills joy. And we don't enjoy this life. We just spend it trying to make something of us, don't we? You know what Jesus says to that? Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Come and take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to God. Let's pray. We love you completely. We long to build something in you, Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you gave us Jesus, that your glory is displayed in the fact that you sent him and he took the lowest of low places that we might have eternal life, that we can be freed from trying to make something of ourselves and be lost in his love. Lord, grow our faith to grow further into that. And Father, if anyone here this morning has never tasted that love, never tasted that kind of joy pray that you'd move in them. Lord, stir them with the gospel. Stir them by your spirit. We pray this now in Christ's name.